0: Hey, everybody. Dave Hodges here, host of the Common Sense Show. Glad you stayed with us through the break. We're now in the guest segment of our show, and you know we are the show that is freeing America one enslaved mind at a time. We're really glad to have you. We have an old friend of mine, an old coaching buddy. Although we never coached together, um, we have been in similar places, both high school and college. And our guest has also been a professional coach overseas in football, and that's his main sport. I coached a little bit of football, just enough to be dangerous and stupid. As you know, I mostly coach basketball. And uh, our guest, Fred Hager, has been looking at, well, shall we say, strategies for maximizing kids' abilities. And some of the facts that he's found are not what you'd find on the beaten path. And that's why we decided to do a show on this. Some usual things you can do to enhance kids' performance, athletically, academically, you name it. It's stuff that you wouldn't necessarily come across in the mainstream. But before we get started, we got to pay some bills. You know, there are three companies here for this broadcast that keep the lights on. One is Noble Gold. And a lot of people are saying, <laughs> I'm still being cautious. But a lot of people are saying that the coronavirus is going to come here and going to wreak havoc. And I do know that federal agencies are meeting. I do know federal agencies are planning. I do know that uh, uh, Acting Director Gaynor of FEMA gave... Uh, martial law recommendations to Trump and I was allowed to know a few of them but not all of them and some of them include being shut in shut-in quarantines are you ready well you need food water guns gold ammo medicine and tools we can help you with the food 40% off and we asked the manufacturer to expand the sale to a larger quantity so we have both two week the emergency kit and the four week standard and you can buy multiples as long as supplies last because supplies are being strained they're still meeting demands But supplies are indeed being strained. But this is the kind of company they are. They kept the sale at 40%. There are companies I've seen that are raising their prices because they know times could be tough. That's not what MPS is doing. So how do you get yours? How do you get your 25-year shelf life? Great restaurant quality? Go to preparewithdave.com. That's preparewithdave.com. Okay, we've got also, too, the water. We've got the gold. And you really need to have all, because when you come out of a crisis with the food, you really need to have gold. Why? Because gold's the only thing that's gonna hold its value. Anything that would sweep the country and put us in mass quarantine, or an EMP attack, whatever it would be, you really need to have something that people will respect and honor for currency coming out the other side. And there's no guarantee the dollar will. In fact, I'd say the dollar probably won't. It'll hyperinflate and go out of business. Gold and silver have held its value for 6,000 years. They'll convert your assets like an IRA to a gold backed IRA. They'll also sell you gold and silver directly. This is really, really important stuff to, to calculate people because at, at the end of a crisis, people come out the other side and they don't think about planning for the after effect. And gold and silver is the after effect. So noble gold can be reached and they'll help you with no pressure. 877 646 5347. That's 877 646 5347. And the link for Noble Gold is noblegoldinvestments.com. Tell them Dave Hodges sent you, because they do have specials for our audience. And then finally, uh, <laughs> the Naval War College says on the fourth day of a crisis, waterborne illnesses become the number one killer. Well, we've got the Alexa Pure Pro water filter, so you got the food, you got the gold, now you got the water, and this can purify water out in the open. You can see standing water and be go, ooh, I don't think I can drink that, and you're probably right, but you could treat it with the occupure water filter and you would be able to drink it in most cases. The research for the validity of this product is at waterwithdave.com. Not gonna give you anecdotal testimonials from people, those are worthless. I am moved by research. As you know, I taught research at the college and university levels. I taught it to graduate students trying to get their master's degree thesis at a university. And so I am ingrained in the research process and this is what they give you with uh, the AquaPure Pro water filter. And you can see the comparisons it's incredible they're also offering a 40% off sale so this is why we're going with companies and representing them that have quality but they're not price gouging in times of in times of crisis and this is why I respect them so much and you should too that's who keeps the lights on here and I think you can see that here at the common sense show we turn down more advertising than we ever take on And that's because we advertise for products that we feel that our audience is going to need anyway we're really glad to be with you in this guest sequence Uh, Fred Hager is an old friend of mine we've talked on a number of issues a number of times current events to sports and uh, we know each other's uh, viewpoints on a lot of areas in human performance and now it's time to share them Fred I'm glad that you joined us and I know that you've just completed reading a book that really kind of galvanized a lot of things that you and I've talked about in the past.
1: Yeah. I, uh, you know, I'm, I've coached for a long time and I've always believed the Addie's that anyone can be fairly successful if they put their nose to the grindstone and just work really, really hard and you can overcome anything if you, if you can you live by those rules and, and all that. And, and in fact, um, there is something to them, but the very first chapter of this book, Dave, just blew me away, and it it, uh, it, it made a point that I, I I couldn't argue with it. It really was interesting. They they show, this book is called Outliers, and it's by Malcolm uh, Gladwell, and um, he's a, he wrote the first couple of chapters talk about one of the big predictors on whether or not a, a kid's going to be good in athletics is his birth date.
0: Yeah, and, and you know what uh, my first reaction was, Fred? Oh, come on. Fred's uh, not into astrology. Please tell me it's not astrology.
1: Exactly. You know, the first time I read that, I said, what? Birthday? How, how does that have an effect on that? But, but it does. And, and if, you, if you look, he one of the first examples he gives of this is he gives a couple of rosters of a, of a junior hockey team from Canada and a Czechoslovakian soccer team a junior Czechoslovakian soccer team, the, the national team actually from Czechoslovakia. And the, and the rosters are like any other roster. It's got their names and, and their heights and weights, and, and, um, and it's got um, where they were born and what position they played. It also put down their birthdays because, like I said in a minute, and so he said, okay, take a look at these rosters and see if you see anything on the rosters that catches your eye. And I, I looked at the rosters, and it looked like any other roster of any other team I've ever looked at before. And he said, what you probably saw was nothing. He, he said himself, he didn't see anything either until it was brought up to him, look at their birthdays. And so I look at the birthdays of this hockey team, and February, January, March, January, 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 um, it, it goes on and on. All the kids, more than half the teams, were made up of birthdays in January, February, and March, and I'm like, "That's really odd. If half your team is made up of those those months birthdays in those months, what's the deal?" Well, it makes perfect sense. These kids, even though they're at on these rosters, were probably in 15, 16, 17 years old. All their lives, teams were were established based on. When your birthday is, they, there's a cutoff date to be on a team, and, and that's January one. Once you hit January one, you have to go to the next level. So all these kids, when they were in hockey, they probably started when they were five or six. When they were, when their birthday was, in you know, uh, after January one, they got on this particular team and they started playing. Well, when you're five or six or seven or eight, the difference between a kid that's born in January and a kid that's born in December can be dramatic, especially physically. A whole year in size and growth gives you advantages as far as how big you are, how fast you are, uh, what kind of agility you have. Also your, your mental development and your social development and all that comes into play. So the little kids that start who are the, the all stars when they're eight, seven, eight, nine, ten get to play on select teams, get to have better coaching. And their, their, their seasons usually last longer. If they're on a club team, they might play. My daughter, when she played club softball when she was ten a tenu, she played 130 games her first year of softball. If she had played just rec ball, she would have played 25 games.
0: She yeah, and, and let, let me brag for you here and tell you how it paid off. Fred's uh, daughter won a state high school championship with a walk-off home run in the last inning. And she went on to play collegiately, Uh, in the sec and won a national title and was the ncaa player of the year did i get that Uh, right fred she actually won two
1: national titles but yeah you got yeah you're right two
0: national titles yeah yeah the last (laughs) one sticks in my mind i still got that on my dvr i was so proud of her uh because i remember uh seeing you in a copy room with her one day while you were copying materials for the class you were teaching and you were making her run Uh sprints and she was four years old
1: <laughs> yeah I have a real yeah. clear
0: memory I told the audience i said hey I've known this guy for a long time but yeah, yeah and you're right about the advantages of having better coaches uh being with more experienced players and bringing out the best in your talent you're absolutely right about that
1: yeah that's that's that, it blew me away when I first heard just like when I told you birthday was a good predictor it blew me away when I heard it too but then the, the more i think about it it makes sense it, um if they uh they just have so many advantages, just just from that aspect alone. Now, there's other things that play into success. Uh, the uh, it says outliers, the story of success. There's other things that play into it, but and those are a little surprising. They're not so surprising. The other ones aren't so surprising, but they really make a big difference. Hardly anyone ever makes it all by themselves to greatness. That just doesn't happen. There's lots of stuff plays into that, but. Um, when I heard about the birthday, it just made all the sense in the world. And there's there's some talk about, and that also is true in school days. And you know that you're a teacher. The kids come to school September one is the cutoff, and and so it's September one September two. If your birthday's in September um, October November, you're one of the oldest kids in your class, and you have so much more development. You've got you've developed uh, longer than the kids that, like me. a July birthday or an August birthday, you know, you're at a disadvantage right from the start. And so those kids end up in, this, in the, uh, the special classes, in the advanced classes, in the gifted programs more often than kids that have birthdays in, in, in the late summer and stuff because they're more developed. And so it gives them an advantage. Not only does it give them a chance to expand on what they've learned in class and, and get extra help and all that, but it gives them confidence and gives them this opportunity to start doing some extra things and learn some other things besides just the rote stuff in the textbook. It
0: makes yeah. a big difference. No, it, it absolutely does. So let's take it from sports just for a second. How could this help a kid academically? And I'll tell you how it hurt me. I'll tell my story very quickly. I turned five years of age on August 11th, and I started kindergarten on August 25th. Yep, yeah. That hurt me.
1: Sure, sure, that, so, that uh, yeah, makes a difference.
0: Yeah, because most of the kids were six months to almost a year older than me. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, so that that definitely hurt me. So how do you see, we, we know about the sports, how do you think that can hurt kids academically?
1: Well, you know, development athletically and development intellectually are all based on Nature and nurture are all based on their genetics, and also on their their the environment that they grow up in, and, and and both of those are really really important. Um, and and the the guy this guy uh, uh, Gladwell talks about that exactly about how if if you have if you live in a certain environment, um, and and you're encouraged. Um, then you you have you'll you advance farther you'll you'll have more knowledge be better educated and have a, a better chance of of having success in life. Um, uh, he did a uh, read an about a guy who tested a whole bunch of elementary kids and did an IQ test, and then he took all the kids, the upper five percent, and he started studying them from when they were in first grade all the way through um, through college and he actually sent people out, interviewed them, and, and and he really kept close track on them. And and these kids were all basically geniuses. They all had IQs of over 120, 20, all the way up to 180 and stuff. They were all really brilliant people. And you would expect the kids that were 180 to be the ones that were the most successful. And some of them were very, very uh, successful. But other than just being the smartest, there were other things just as, if not even more important than just your intelligence, it, it, your home life. If you, The kids that were from wealthier homes, when they would go home, their parents would have them playing piano, taking piano lessons and, and dance lessons and playing in sports teams and going to concerts and museums and things like that. Whereas the kids from lower income, even though they were brilliant, they never had those advantages. These kids weren't exposed to lots of adults. They weren't exposed to museums and, and, and music and, and athletics and the arts and all that stuff. So those kids that didn't have the same advantages from their home life didn't seem to re- attain the same amount of success as the kids who had lots of encouragement and uh, lots of experience in their home life. So that played a really big role. You don't need to be the, the 180 IQ, the, G, the ultra genius type, the Einstein type to be successful. You just need to have enough intelligence. And that usually somebody somebody around the, the 120 to 130. Those people have enough intelligence if they have the right environment, they can be as if not more successful than the ultra geniuses.
0: You know what this reminds me of, Fred? It reminds me of what I learned about the relationship between happiness and money. As you know, I'm a long time psychology teacher, instructor, professor, and And as a consequence, I learned uh, from David Myers, a great researcher from the University of Michigan, who's written tons of textbooks in use by various professors. He did a study of the relationship of money and happiness. And he found that when people didn't get basic needs met and they were in poverty, it did uh, correlate to misery. And he did find that people that had their basic needs met uh, were much happier than those who did not. So money made a difference in happiness levels between the have-nots and the haves. Now, but the, the difference he found between the haves and the people who are super rich, he found that money was not a predictor of happiness between those two groups. So it's kind of like yeah. lack of money can make you miserable, but but a lot of money doesn't necessarily make you happy. And we're kind of seeing this with intelligence, aren't we?
1: Absolutely, absolutely, it's uh, really, really interesting. And, and then the, the next thing he talks about, in the book was the ten, the rule of 10,000 hours and and so while somebody may have to be very intelligent or very gifted athletically uh, if if they don't have the opportunity so let, let's say they're really young for their age and they might be very very good athletes for their age but compared to the older kids in their class or on their team they're not quite there so they don't get a chance to play on the select teams and get the good coaching and get extra games and more practice and stuff they they are on just rec teams and stuff. Well, they, they, don't, they don't have as much time to practice, they don't get as much help, and so they never become great. Imagine if we had two sets of teams, of so the January 1 and the July 1 teams, and have a whole different league for both age groups, how they be? But getting back to 10,000 hours, um, he, he used the example of Mozart. Mozart was, is widely uh, considered to be the, most, uh, the best mu- uh, you know, uh, composer of all time, just incredibly gifted, could do everything. But in fact, if you go back and look at the research, he said Mozart was a late bloomer. Now that sounds crazy, because he wrote his first symphony when he was like six or something like that, and he was writing music all the time. But the music he wrote when he was young really wasn't that good. He wrote music, he knew about music, his father was a a musician and a a composer, and and taught him all this, but he wrote music for about 10 years that really wasn't that good. It was only good, people only thought it was good because it was a little kid doing it. It was very precocious, you know, and and people thought it was was really cool that this young kid was doing it, but the music itself wasn't that great. After he'd been writing music for 10, 15 years, and he put in 10,000 hours of writing, now his music just blossomed and became incredible. The music he wrote later on in life was so much better than the music he wrote when he was young, because he put in the time. Bill Gates, another example. Bill Gates, when he was in junior high, he went to a, a public school, but it was a very uh, it was a public school in a fairly wealthy neighborhood, very progressive, and there was a, a, a ladies' uh, club that used to raise money for the school for different things and one year they raised money and they bought a bunch of computers and put it at the school. So Bill Gates and his buddies, he had some friends, they all started working on this computer and programming and doing all sorts of stuff and and, and spent lots of time on the computer. There was a teacher at the school that noticed these kids were really into it. And Bill Gates lived within walking distance of the University of Washington okay so this guy went to the a professor at washington and said listen i've got these kids they're really into it can i bring them over and show them and and you can take a look at them and see what they're doing so he took them he took the kids to walk the university of washington and he saw these kids were just they were incredible they had great skills and they were doing really really well for their age and stuff and so he invited them to come in and use they could get time on computers just like a just like the regular college students they could buy time they could get time on those computers so bill gates and his buddies would go there every day after school and spend time programming on these computers they got so good that one summer when they were in high school they hired these uh, bill gates and two of his friends to write a program that's still used today it's still a, a viable program today and they did it in the summer and they made a little bit of money on it but bill gates was always going there now he would be there until all hours at night and his parents would wait, try to wake him up in the morning for school and they couldn't figure out why it was so hard to wake him up every day. But he wasn't getting home from, from the university until two, three o'clock in the morning sometimes. Wow. So but he spent ten thousand hours. And the last one that I never thought of, and most people you know, most people see rock musicians and, and they think, Oh, it just comes kind of natural and they're just doing this and that and, and they're they're good. No, those guys put lot, and those guys put lots of time into it. But the Beatles the Beatles had an incredible advantage when they first started together, um, it's pretty famous. Uh, I think they're from Liverpool. It's pretty, pretty uh, famous story that they would go. They went to uh, Hamburg, Germany, and started playing in the clubs in Hamburg. And these clubs were kind of risque. And and but anyway, they, they needed music. The uh, music had become so big at that time that this this uh, guy who. Uh, book groups to these different uh, bars and, and clubs and stuff um, would book these guys and they come in and they'd, they'd have to play eight-hour gigs. They'd go in and they would play in the club for eight hours and they do this night after night after night, seven nights a week and, and they spent, one time they spent six months there, seven nights, seven eight hours a night, seven nights a week for like six months. These guys got so good at stage presence and playing their instruments that they put that 10,000 hours in. And then they became the world famous band that they've been
0: in. Yeah. Well, what I wonder when I hear stories like this, Fred, is uh, what happens to the other parts of someone's life when they achieve greatness to the 10,000 hours, what suffers? Did you see anything about that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, he did talk about that, um, and um, it. Other things in life get in the way. Um, there's two groups of people that uh, that I was really impressed that they that he discussed in the book. One was the uh, Jewish immigrants that the, the Eastern European uh, Jewish immigrants that came to the United States in the uh, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Um, they came to the United States and. Um, their skills were, because they were Jewish, they were not allowed to own land in Europe. So they had to work in town, and they had businesses, and they became tailors, and they became shop owners, and they became all, you know, different city-type jobs. So when they got to New York, they would have to find something to do. And they noticed that uh, for, for some strange reason in New York, there were stores that actually had clothing that you could buy. In Europe, you didn't buy clothing off the rack. You would—you might go to a tailor and have clothing made for you, but you couldn't buy it off the rack. You had to buy uh, cloth and make your own clothes. So these people saw these, this clothing there, and so they got the idea, well, why don't we start making clothing? We're tailors, we know how to do this stuff. And so they started in the garment business, and the garment district in New York was, at one time, was 100% Jewish. Everyone that owned those, those factories and stuff were Jewish. And, and they worked really, really hard. Uh, they worked 12, 14, 18 hours a day in the garment district doing clothing. And then they would bring stuff home and work on it at home. But when they had children, they started having children that were born around the 1930s, 20s, and 30s, these kids saw the work the work ethic their parents had. They were there doing the work as well. They, they noticed this. So all these immigrants that came over and, and had these kids around nineteen thirty. Those kids ended up all going to college because that was important to them for kids to do better. Those kids went to college and became lawyers and doctors and engineers, and, and that's what they did. They became extremely successful, and they were there at the right time. And, and, and lawyers, the, the, the job of being a lawyer changed dramatically when those kids that were born in, in 1930, uh, when they got old enough to go good through law school, things changed quite a bit 25 years after they were born. So that's one. They that's all they did was they worked in the in the in the garbage industry did in the factories, the sweatshops. Another group of people, the hardest working farmers, he said, in the world, are rice farmers. And so in 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 Asia, China, Japan, North Korea, and Korea, um, Thailand, all these countries, rice is huge, and the rice farmers. They 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 make the most money, but they also have to work the hardest. They would have the more time you spent on your rice paddies, uh, fertilizing, watering, leveling. Make sure you're perfectly leveling. Make sure the plants were planted exactly six inches apart. Weeding, doing all that stuff. They worked from basically before the sun came up to after it went down, and that's all they did. So their kids, when they when they immigrated to the United States. They had this incredible work ethic because they'd done all that. So you probably want to make a comment about that. You know, it's it's kind of interesting. Those people had that kind of a. Uh, that's all they did. They had nothing else to do. Yeah, many-
0: I I hear what you're saying. I here's what I wonder too, though, and I kind of alluded to it earlier when you uh, started talking about these uh, Jewish uh, uh, immigrants and their success levels based on their work ethic, but. Like I said, when you spend so much time in one area, other areas can suffer and and and, and I don't think this has probably been researched. I'll tell you it would be fascinating research uh would be to go through and look at driven people, those that reach the ten thousand hour threshold, and then how many of human misery factors do they have, like does the stress affect their health though they have more health effects as a group, do they have more divorce? Do they have more juvenile delinquency among their kids because they're not able to give the supervision due to their time on task? And I'm just throwing these ideas out there as research ideas. I'm in, in, you know, Fred, I look at the world a lot of times in terms of research. And and sure. what I'm wondering are are there intervening variables that would help better describe these people who becomes like this? What are their personality traits? And how does the how do these uh, drives for success? impact the rest of their lives compared to people who don't meet the 10,000 threshold that make for an interesting study, wouldn't it?
1: I think it would. I, you know, you think about uh, actors and musicians and you hear about the alcoholism, the drug use and the suicide rate, early death and stuff like that with all these, you know, different musicians. I'm telling you, if you played violin in a, in a major symphony orchestra, you sat in a, in a practice room for six, eight hours a day for 10 years before you were good enough to play in that. So th- that's all you ever had time for. So, I, and rock musicians, they sit and, they sit and play guitar all day long. That's all they do. So I think there might be some to that. It'd be very interesting to, to find that out. They, uh, it's funny that you mention, mention that. In one of the chapters in the book, it talks about this experimental public school in New York called uh, the KIP Academy, K-I-P-P Academy. Have you ever heard of it? Yeah. Uh, yes, I have okay then uh, you're familiar that these kids these kids they're from the bronx and it's they have a lottery every year and there's one kid out of a hundred gets into the school it's really difficult it's, you have to be really lucky and there there are no requirements other than you put your name into the lottery and then you get in if you get, your name gets pulled you get in and these kids um they, they went through a, a daily schedule, this one little girl. She was 12 years old. I'm going to try. Anyway, she woke up every day at 5, 5.45 in the morning. And she would get home at after 5 o'clock in the evening. And then she would study until 11 or 12 every night and then go to bed and do it again the next day. And um, in their school day, um, their school lasted from... I think it was like 7 in the morning until like 5 o'clock in the evening or something like that. It was a really long school day. And, you know, they spent an hour and a half every day on math, an hour and a half every day on on English, an hour and a half every day on science, an hour and a half. And then they had every kid in the school was in the orchestra. So at least they had some things going on. And they had some other different things going on. But um, it's pretty intense. And these kids go to the school from first grade to fifth grade. And then, like ninety percent of them get scholarships to elite private schools in New York City, and eighty percent of them end up going to college and, and all that. It's an it's amazing success rate, um, but it, it showed some um, some school years for some uh, for for like Japan and for other countries. Japan, had, their school year is two hundred and forty three days. Ours is one hundred and eighty in this country. And there's a group out of Massachusetts that, just like you just said, was real real big on making sure you didn't overstress the kids. You gave them plenty of time to, for play and activities and, and time to, to reflect and all this kind of stuff, long summers and all that. These kids in, in China and, and Taiwan and, and Japan, they don't they don't have school years like that. They don't have summer vacations. They go to school all the time. And you wonder... The success rated by some of these, these countries and these kids in these other countries is not really incredible. I, I'd like to see the, the research, like you said, done. But apparently, it's, um, if you really want to be a success, you have to kind of make this kind of sacrifice.
0: Yeah, like I said, but I'd like to know the cost before you encourage your kid to do this. You know, because sure. I, I look at, I'll give you an example, like gymnastics may be the best example. And so you yeah. get your kid in gymnastics and you have tutors and everything because they don't have time for regular school or you know the sure. Olympic ice skaters, that's another mode. And what I see from that is the kids, except for the kids they work out with, they, they don't have any peer experiences. And you wonder what's the effect on their social skills and so forth. And the, the, like I said, I, I think greatness is great and we need great people in America. So we have the best tools, the best weapons, the best technology. But also, too, I look at an individual cost. I want to go back to one thing you said, though. and okay. this, is, this is such a multivariate issue. You mentioned about uh, actors, actresses, musicians having higher substance abuse rates. And you're right, they do. Um, yeah. Back in the days when I was doing mental health services, I worked with uh, uh, addicts. And, and so I, I read everything I could get my hands on. And that is true. But also I found something else out. If you go into the dream world, and this has to do with brain chemistry, there are some people that remember their dreams readily and some people that don't. And what they find with the people that do, they call them thin boundary people is kind of a, um, a catch all term. And these thin boundary people tend to be your artists. They tend to be your musicians. They tend to have higher rates of substance abuse and depression and so forth. And they say a lot of it's tied to brain chemistry and the overproduction of some chemicals and the underproduction of other neurotransmitters. And uh, I don't want to yeah. get too technical here. I know you know what I'm talking about, but uh, sorry, but, I, I, I but, okay. but what I'm saying is these issues here aren't just single cause and effect issues. They're multivariate issues.
1: You know, I think uh, part of the thing is, is in order to do 10,000 hour things, uh, a person has to want to. Um, there are people who are geniuses who don't really want to do that and they, use, they, 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 they don't do it and they, and they don't necessarily become super successful. They're just really, really smart people and, and they never get their 10,000 10, hours in. Um, I, I know with my daughter, um, she played club softball from when she was nine years old all the way through high school and, and one of our concerns, my wife and I, our concern was that this is pretty intense. It's year-round and it's, Really, really intense, and and um, we were always a little concerned by that. My daughter played multiple sports in high school, which I think made a big difference and gave her her body a, a rest and a chance to do other things, which is real important. But and and my daughter also was involved in dance and school and stuff, and so she had lots of other interests. And um, but we were concerned by that. And and but she even I never had to wake her up on a Saturday morning to get to go to a, a softball tournament. I'd knock on her door, Dad. I'm already awake. And She was lying there in her uniform a lot of times with her backpack ready to go. She just wanted to go do it, and I think that's you know when she was watching television, she'd stand there with a bat and swing a, and do shadow slings watching TV. And she was always, you know, um, she was always doing something. She just just loved doing it, and so not every kid wants to do that. And, you know, there's a there's a burnout rate, and that's where you know the uh, the Soviet Union and East Germany. Um, came up with the idea of cross training uh, because they found that their athletes, by the time they were basically seniors in high school, first year at college, they'd kind of burned out on their sports an awful lot. And so they, they found out that it's, it's important for them to do other things as well as just their sport. So they would go out and play soccer a day or two or do a couple of weeks of, of tennis or something, something different to give them their, a little refresh, a little, uh, to freshen them up a little bit. And so they're they're I'm, I understand what you're saying. It, it, it kids have got to want to do this, and they have to make a commitment to doing it. And um, you know, we lost a, a a great drummer, the drummer from Rush, Neil Peart, uh, passed away. Just it was last week or the week after before that. And that's what he, he was a drummer, man. That's what he did. And that's he lived that. That whole, those guys in play those rock bands, they just, that's what they do and they love doing it. So you might not be able to get them to do something different,
0: you know? Yeah, that's true. But I, I think if you ingrain it at an earlier age, you know, for me, I, I look back on my athletic career and I had some moderate success. Um, and, and my dad made me do everything. He started me out with baseball as a little kid, the wiffle ball when I was four and five years of age, and also got into martial arts. And I did martial arts for 13 years, and it provided me a good discipline foundation. But he had me play football, and I played football through high school, had me play baseball, and I couldn't hit a curveball to save my butt, but I still played Uh baseball through high school. But I'll tell you what I did, Uh and my passion was basketball. I'd come home from football, and I'd be tired. I'd do my homework. I'd lay down for a half hour, and this nearby military base, the gym was open till midnight. I went and played and closed the gym down. And uh, I did that almost every night. And uh, yeah. and so you have your passion. But, see, I like the Soviet Union's idea of cross-training. Because I got to cross-train. Yeah. I didn't get the opportunity to burn out. And I think my dad understood that.
1: Yeah. Um, I My brother was a very, very fine basketball player. And, and, you know, he would go. Our neighbors had a basketball hoop on their, their, their driveway. And he'd go over there. He'd be shooting there for hours and hours every day. The famous story about Charles Barkley going down down the street to the park. The lights were on until ten or eleven o'clock at night, and he'd be down there just shooting baskets, playing basketball by himself. There's nobody there. Oh yeah. You, you know.
0: <clears throat> I know. Before my dad put a light up on our home basketball court, I used to open the garage in the middle of winter in Denver, and I'd be bundled to the hilt, and I'd be out there shooting <laughs> baskets as a nine, ten-year-old kid with the lights in the garage lighting up the basket, and. Yeah. Uh, and, and so yeah there, there is something that overcomes a person a passion that takes over that, yeah. uh, that that drives one to be the best that they can be but I also have learned as I've gone through life uh, everything in moderation you know very much what the Bible teaches very everything in moderation okay so we've got birth date opportunity 10,000 hours were there any other factors that you came across?
1: Um Let's see. Yes. One of, um, it, it also comes down to opportunity. Um, you may have a passion to play basketball, but if you don't have a basketball or a, a goal to shoot at, you're never going to be a great basketball player. You've got to have an opportunity. Um, and, and, and this whole book is about for providing uh, kids and people to have a chance, to have an opportunity to do something that they really want to do and they're, they could be really good at. Um, it, it's, it's, I'm trying to find a, the last page. There was a quote. Um, uh, let's see. He, saw, he talks about outliers. Cause uh, let's see. It says um, people sometimes will say I did this all by myself, but that's not true. It, it requires – um, uh, uh, in a web of advantages and inheritances, and some deserve and some not, some earn and some just plain lucky, but all critic, critical to making them who they are. The outlier in the end is not an outlier at all. Somebody who has had an opportunity, has had a chance um, to, to, to do something. Like Bill Gates had a chance, had an opportunity to go to the University of Washington and, and be on their computers. That only happens... You know, Bill, Bill Gates and those guys... All came around in in, in, in the mid nineteen fifties. Little gave fifty five. Uh, um, uh, jobs. Job, I think is fifty four. That was a, they were born in those days, and that gave them that. You know, that there was an opportunity there. There was there was no computers before that. And by if you got born in the in, if you're born in the sixties, you know those those jobs are already gone. Somebody else in the fifties figured it all out and was making money on it. That's know? right. I, I think it all comes down to just like, if you if you get. If you have a chance to do something, if you if you're if you're encouraged and and you have a coach or a teacher or a mentor or a music director or a, or a, a play director, somebody who, who gives you an opportunity to do your thing and and encourages you and 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 and, and nurtures you, you know, to do those things. There you go. That's that's the thing. Because everyone's got abilities and talents. Just a matter of, about to use it. Get an opportunity.
0: Yeah, this is so insightful Fred Um, And it's it makes people and I'm sure the audience is having experiences like me Let me just share you two. I'll share you two experiences that tie into what you're talking about My parents were determined. I was going to be a good student and I was a good student in grade school And then all of a sudden I get hit with this busing order for desegregation and because you're white, we need to send you to a primarily black school. And black kids come to white schools and all the other races intermingle to try to achieve racial balance. I don't know if you remember right. those programs or not yet, yeah, but I was caught up right. with that in Denver. And I got to go to the infamous Grant Junior High, who I actually love. But I had an experience there, two experiences in seventh grade. And see, I should not have been at this school because I didn't live in the neighborhood. I was bust about 12, 13 miles. And right. I had this seventh grade teacher named Mrs. Tubman. And she decided with the permission of the principal to engage us in speed reading and other reading techniques. And we spent the whole year doing this. And it was my first experience at it. And I went from being, and I want to be modest here, a good student to a really good student. Because I was reading in seventh grade about 15, 1600 words a minute with over 80% comprehension. Uh, and, And that was because of this teacher. And, and then again in high school, they brought in the program when I was a senior and I took it again and I went to over 2,000 words a minute. And I'm not nearly there today because you really gotta work on these skills. It's kind of like a sports skill. You gotta do it all the time to stay at the top level. But sure. th- that experience in seventh grade changed me as a student and, and uh, believe me, I'm not bragging, I'm just using myself as a testimonial. Uh, I graduated fifth in a high school class 800 I graduated high honors, undergraduate. I was number one in my graduate class. And and I look at that and I say, that was my turning point. That was my opportunity. And in basketball, I had the same thing. My parents decided they didn't want me bust all the way through high school. So we moved to the suburbs that were outside that federal desegregation ruling. And I went to a high school in the suburbs. And there I encountered Jim Brandenburg, who ended up going on and coaching in college and coached three NCAA teams to the NCAA tourney, a rare feat. Well, I had him in ninth and 10th grade. And Jim didn't just teach me to play basketball. And I became an okay basketball player. Jim taught me how to coach. And it's kind of funny, I met with my old friend, Larry Risk, who was uh, the uh, voted the all-time best player at Metropolitan State College. He came out of my high school and he was three years ahead of me. And Larry and I got together last summer when I was visiting him in Denver. And he said the exact same words I just said. He said, Jim taught me not only how to coach, because he had a brief stint coaching and did well, He said, he he really taught me everything. He turned my life around in terms of my performance. And you get these people now and then that come along, Fred, whether it's academic or athletic, that turn you on your ear and point you in the right direction. So the opportunity, you said it too, with Bill Gates. What if he had not been next to that computer lab? We wouldn't have Microsoft in the form that we have it today.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. there's a, I just found a, a quote that I was kind of looking for in the book, that I think is, it was at the very end of the book, and explains exactly what uh, what, what the whole outcome of this thing is. Everything we have learned at Outliers says that success follows a predictable course. It is not the brightest to succeed. If it were, um, anyway, uh, of course, success simply the sum of the decisions and efforts we make on our own behalf. It is rather a gift. Outliers are those who have been given opportunities who have had the strength and presence of mind to seize them. There's a key factor right there, seizure opportunities. For hockey and soccer players born in January, it's a better shot at making the ulcer teeth. For the Beatles, it was Hamburg. For Bill Gates, the lucky break of being born at the right time and getting the gift of a computer terminal in junior high. Um, so they were born at the right time with the right parents and the right ethnicity, who allowed them to, which allowed them to practice takeover law, talking about... Uh, um, the, the the Jewish uh, kids from the parents work in the garment district. Anyway, it's it, it all comes down to having a mentor or having some getting some sort of break that just that spurs your passion and 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 and, and that you seize that opportunity. And that's what it's all about.
0: You know, it's um, interesting you use the word mentor. My dissertation mm-hmm. you know, was in on resilience and what were the factors that comprised resilience. And in every study that you have, everything that led up to the research I did, said that having a mentor who could guide you and help you accept your mistakes and not let them crush you but teach you to use those mistakes as a springboard to better performance and knowledge was absolutely yeah. critical. And, and I see that all the time. Um, and and uh, I just saw this in the world of sports. We have a really good player here. He's ignored. He's off the radar because the team's been so bad. But he's a great player of the Phoenix Suns. His name's Devin Booker. And he's as good as any guard playing the game today. And I mean any guard. And, uh, and, and okay, do I have the credentials to say that? Well, I was an NBA scout for two years for quantified. So, yeah, I'd say I do. He is as good as anybody out there. He got snubbed on the All-Star team because his team hasn't been 510 years. And, and Devin, I think, is in his sixth year. Uh, and he's leading the league in so many different categories; it's unbelievable. But his mentor was uh, Kobe Bryant, and and he was at camps, and, and 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 Kobe was his idol. And I watched after the Kobe Bryant tragedy, and the Suns played their first game, and they showed Devin uh, Booker just in absolute tears, just mm-hmm. crushed and devastated. And and I thought, oh my gosh, there's the mentor part of resilience. Cause how does Devin Booker go out every night on crappy teams and play as well as he does? Cause he has resilience. And where yeah. did he get that work ethic from his idol, Kobe Bryant, who was yeah. notorious for great work ethic.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and he's lucky to have a mentor like that. I mean, obviously he's taken, he sees the opportunity to be an NBA basketball player. And he's probably worked his tail off to be as good as he is. I'm sure, he's got lots of athletic gifts and stuff, but it's, he worked his tail off, and he's got a mentor like like Kobe Bryant to be his mentor to to help him through these tough times and stuff. Yeah, that's that's, that's the deal. You know, imagine if we if we if we did do that uh, to have two hockey leagues one one in January one and one July first. Think of how many more hockey players, great hockey players, there, there there would there would be in the world, or baseball players, or whatever, musicians, or you know, physicists or whoever. If we had those opportunities and there was somebody there to mentor and help these, these people, wow, it could be really good. It could make is, a big difference in our world.
0: Well, that would be a good uh, PhD dissertation topic, the correlation between uh, a team's birth dates and um, uh, success. I remember you were saying on these uh, teams that... Um, it was like a two to one ratio that 25% yeah. of the total participants or 50% of the total participants and all-star teams were of those three months, first three months when you would only expect 25% through random draw. Yeah.
1: yeah. Oh yeah. It's uh, yeah. He, he that it, it, it doesn't make any sense, you know, statistically, but it's there. It's because that's the way it really is. Kids, you know, I, if I had started college, I think, you know, I played football in college. If I had started college two or three years later than I did, I would have been much more mature physically. I would have been a much better football player. Now, I don't know if I'd ever have a chance to play, you know, in, in, as a pro or anything like that, but I would have been better because I would have been stronger and more mature. Um, we had talked the other day about, you know, in Texas, they, they hold kids back in eighth grade, so they'll be a year older when they go to high school. Yes. And they're, there's definitely
0: something to that. Well, yeah. you're, you're, there's a reason why they do it. And it's why coaches yeah. in college redshirt players in basketball and football yeah. to give them the extra year of maturity. And when I was a college coach, I did the same thing. And I'll tell you, most of the time it worked. So, mm-hmm. uh, what Fred, tell people the name of the book and the author again.
1: Yeah, okay. The book is called Outliers, the Story of Success. And it's written by Malcolm Gladwell. G-L-A-D-W-E-L-L, Malcolm Gladwell. And uh, it, it's it's a. I got this. My brother-in-law gave this to me for Christmas, and it sat on it sat on, sat on the shelf for about a month after Christmas. And then I I thought you know I'm gonna start reading again. So I picked the book up and started reading. And I was just like I couldn't set it down. It was just Wow, this is really, was really interesting
0: stuff. So I would highly recommend it. Yeah, well, being a coach and a teacher, that was right up your alley, and and oh, yeah. we were actually talking about other things in a, a personal conversation when this came up, and I said, "Man, this is fascinating. This would make it for an interesting show. I think my audience would like to hear this, and uh, we'll we'll find out from the ratings. But I have a feeling they will. Well, Fred, we're just about out of time, and I want to thank you so much. One, for serendipitously bringing this up to me, because I'm now going to get a copy of the book and read it. But uh, secondly, I thought this was useful for two old coaches to come on here and two old educators as well to share this information. So thanks for joining us here on the Common Sense Show.
1: Well, you're very welcome, and thank you so much for asking me, Dave. It's, it's, great, to, it's great to talk about this and visit with you
0: again. Yeah, it really is. And to everybody else, hey, we'll see you back here tomorrow. Hope you enjoyed the show.